Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia, how are you? Hi Carrie. Um, I'm actually great because yesterday I got bangs. Bangs, not, not bangs. bangs. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you using the American term? Because I'm talking to you and I, you know, I want to make it easy. Okay, well, great. <laughs> I've seen a picture. They look great. Thank you. Yeah, I got a fringe for all of our English listeners. <laughs> a curtain fringe, I believe it's called. And it's been a long time since I shook up my hairstyle. I used to have a fringe for years and then I grew it out and now it's back and it feels great. And I just was reminded that sometimes... A little mix-up of your look can be a fabulous new lease of life, can't it? Like a great new haircut. You just, I felt good. I left the salon with a spring in my step and I've been flicking my hair all day. <laughs> Thrilled for you. How about I, you? How are you doing? Well, my thoughts on bangs are as follows. I love bangs and I had bangs for a little while, actually when we knew each other maybe. Yeah, you did. But they really don't, they really don't work with my hair because it's too thick and it curls and it just looks bad. So I'm very jealous. You have high maintenance hair for a fringe. That's true. You'd need to do it every morning. Yeah. And I did not when we knew each other. (laughs) (laughs) I remember it being a very cute look, actually. Oh, thank you. But it was not. But that's okay. (laughs) I'm okay. As we're recording this, I'm still recovering from COVID. And I'm just at the bored stage now. Like, I'm tired, but not tired enough to be totally zonked out. And I'm stuck in my house. And I just want to be done with it. But I'm glad to be here with you and, you know, feeling well enough to record, which is a blessing. It is, but it sucks that you've been sick. And I'm just going to say again, I think I said it on the mini set. I'm going to say it here too. Thank you so much for doing it anyway, even though you're not feeling very well. Well, you are very great and you have excellent bangs. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So what's going on today? Today, we are excited to welcome the novelist Pola Aloysiorek, who is here to talk about her latest novel, Mona, which has been translated from Spanish by Adam Morris. This is the story of Mona, a young Peruvian novelist invited to Sweden for a prize giving of one of the most prestigious literary awards in Europe. There, she has a number of hilarious, but like genuinely hilarious, run-ins with authors from all over the world. But lurking beneath the surface is a memory of violence, which Mona cannot fully suppress. This novel is many things, but it is also a delightful satire of the literary world. So we thought we would take satire as our theme on the show today. We'll be exploring our favorite satirical literary work from The Master and Margarita to a non-literary work, Get Out. And we'll be thinking about what we think makes satire successful and maybe some of the times that it can fall flat. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Paula Octavia? I sure can. Paula Aloysiorek was born in Buenos Aires. She's one of Granta's best of young Spanish language novelists, and she was awarded the 2021 Eccles Centre and Hay Festival Writers Award. She is an Eccles Centre Fellow at the British Library as well. Paula is a regular contributor to the New York Times, El País and La Nación, and her fiction has appeared in Granta M Plus One, The White Review, and Freeman's. She lives in Barcelona. Also, quick reminder, we are on Patreon. If you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content, banging extra content, I should even say, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash lit friction, and you will get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to bang on about. In our latest Patreon minisode, we get into our thoughts about TV. 
So it's riveting stuff. And if you're not already a member, please join. (laughs) Yes. If you want our thoughts on The Sopranos, you must join. You can also find a list of some of the books we talked about today on bookshop.org. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Pola, a discussion of satire and literature, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. Stay with us on Literary Friction. Paula Aloshirak, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about the genesis of this novel. How did it come about? Well, I think for it's for a while I've been I've been wanting to write a book about a woman writer who's also a young woman and a professional woman and is has is leading some sort of like bohemian life. Kind of like the the ones that I'd been kind of reading when I was, you know, a kid or a teenager, and I was reading and I was reading, I don't know, Bukowski and 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 Henry Miller or or Martin Amis, whom I was obsessed with, and they had like these characters, you know, like in Money, I mean, or Dead Babies, or you know, those guys, and they were so nasty, and everybody was so drunk and just like having nasty sex. Everything was horrible, and at the same time, you know, there was like the calling of like of writing, you know, like these higher callings, and like how how you know you could deal with all like this, you know ugliness or, or kind of like greedy beauty of disgust in a way that surrounded the lives of these people to create art. And so this is something that, that has interested me for a long time as a reader. And, and then, of course, I, I wanted to, to give it a go as, as an author. So um, at some point, I was kind of like, I had the opportunity. I saw that very early on that I could use my life like uh, a pathway just to write fiction like just being alive was was this kind of like great method <laughs> so i could <laughs> so i could write stories and and getting to travel and like even like kind of like get myself into travel in order to write a good story not not the other way around not just like kind of like stare and see like oh what my mother did what my dad did what did they come like i really wanted to um I don't know, to use myself as a doll in a way, as I had been playing with dolls for so long. And writing uh, has always had this kind of playful um, aspect to me. So uh, that's what I wanted to explore. Is that why a part of this takes place in Sweden? Did you did you actually go to Sweden? Oh, no, I've never been to Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd love to go to Sweden, really. Um <laughs> I go, you know, sometimes like using Google Earth, and, and yeah, I, I've even like, uh, well, I've watched like films, etc. I've been to Nordic places, um, like Finland, for example, which is super interesting. And then, well, I, I've also been to to literary gatherings of of many sorts, and so they were kind of like the brewing nectars that that helped me put together the the book because writers can be as ugly as fascinating. So they were my muses. It was 
funny to hear you talk about Martin Amis because I read this book as a very funny, biting satire about lots of different things, but especially, as you say, the kind of literary world. And it's set in this festival, which draws international authors for the giving of this prestigious literary award. And it takes place in Sweden. But there's also this kind of undercurrent of violence and trauma that snakes along at the bottom. And those are two quite different registers that you balance in this story. And I wonder, do you see them relating to one another? And and did you ever worry about balancing the two different strands? I wanted the comedy to lead into horror because it feels to me that in a way, the, the natural way in which you can really be like grasp by, you know, something that is unsettling or disturbing. Maybe, you know, even if it's not like horror in the sense of the, the, the I mean, there are not, not exactly ghosts, but there are like weird things happening and there's like this atmosphere. And I always have the feeling that, I mean, or with my friends, my female friends, we always, I don't know, we'd say that we are in these different films and then we suddenly we switch the kind of like genre that we're in. So you meet someone and then <laughs> you just like create all this like film in your head that, you know, like all this like super narrative of like who this person is, etc. And then of course, like you also create like the narrative of like who you are in this world. And then you switch genre. You're suddenly like <laughs> in this like completely horror film that you didn't want to go to or that, you know, that, that you just like surprise yourself to get there. Like, oh, I, I wasn't seeing that this was completely horrifying all along when I was just like being, I mean, kind of charmed and feeling like, oh, this is my, my narrative of, of freedom. So I, I, I'd like that sort of captivity of women's subjectivity in a way that, you know, if, even if she, I mean, something horrible has happened, but it's a secret and it's a secret that is locked in her, in her body. And I think this is sometimes many people deal with, with trauma and many women do. And I like the idea that she wouldn't necessarily identify with a victim because that would also mean that she was like part of a a certain film of a certain narrative. You, You really want to put yourself into that if you're, if you're going to fulfill that kind of, fantasy even to yourself. That makes sense. And you're right that in life, we exist on so many different registers and it can shift so quickly anyway. So why not that be a part of literature as well? And, you know, you're you're talking about Mona, who feels totally unique. I'm not surprised that you you kind of started this by wanting to write about a female writer like this, because she's such a wonderful character. And I wonder, did you like writing her? Did you enjoy kind of spending time in her mind and in her company? And was there anything that was difficult for you about bringing her to life in this novel? I'm so glad that that, that you like her. I I was I was obsessed with her when I was when I was writing. Her. <laughs> Just like, and 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 I have like well these friends that that are that are fantastic because they they read and you know sometimes like I would see you know I'd send a friend my friend Victoria I'd send her a chapter and she was like I need more Mona like I kinda like I so she was like really hooked on it and and it that helped me so much because sometimes you're like. I mean, you're not trusting yourself at all. And you're like, what am I doing? Like, I mean, I also like had like this little kid and I had to like do things that I had never done before, like breastfeed or things like that. 
and I was like, oh man, and I, can, I will never finish this book. And and so, I mean, just the fact that that there were, you know, friends that were so hooked on on Mona that, that really helped me to be like, okay, she has to live, she has to exist for me to exist. Otherwise, you know, this is not going to work. So I I had a lot of fun with her. I, I like the idea that that she wouldn't just comply to to being a victim. So in a way, she she completely like you know, became independent of me. I feel like she she made a decision and 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 in a way kind of like it leads to to this ending where I don't know, which is apocalyptic. Yeah, she's a powerful force. And there's something I found very I don't know if liberating's the word, but kind of emboldening because as you say, she doesn't she doesn't do what's expected in many different circumstances and situations. She's a very powerful figure, I think. And that there's this moment in the book where another character at the literary festival makes a statement that all writing is drag. And I thought it was such an interesting idea. And I, I, when I read it, I was like, I want to ask Paula, did you feel like you were in drag when you were writing as Mona? Like, how did you relate to her voice? Like, did it feel like stepping into somebody else's spirit? Well, one one of the things that that I loved about writing this book was that like in Mona a lot of ideas were just incarnated because she kind of like became alive and she had like certain needs <laughs> and and she was like really going after sex on her own or or just like I don't know do, doing things that I kind of like before my eyes and, and I was really fascinated by her agency and so when so I, I didn't feel that kind of like in control as if I was in drag when I was writing her. But throughout my life, like I remember like being a, a child and feeling like fuck, I'm not gonna be a woman writer. Like I'm gonna be a writer. Like I don't care. Like I, I don't wanna be like a certain kind of because I because even if I was a kid, I had realized that, that there was an idea of like women's literature of like a kind of like minor small little thing and I wanted to I mean like well if I'm gonna write I want to, to just be equal and, and I guess this is funny because today is we're recording this on the International Women's Day so I, I guess I guess it was every day was International Women's Day and I was always like really really fascinated by like the extra power that you have writing as a woman since phallic power is endless because it's symbolic. Like, <laughs> right. Okay. But the thing is like, why, why I mean, poor guys, they're like really like contrived and, and constructed and kind of like at bay by, by, well, by, by their own measure. And, and in a way I felt like, I mean, there is really a possibility of being infinite just because we don't have that which apparently is like the measure of that you use to measure civilization so we have to go beyond civilization because we don't have dicks so evidently we're like we're free from the dick we're like this is much better we can create our own dicks i love that idea we can create our own dicks i'm gonna get a tattoo on my butt um so this novel amongst many other things has a lot of just very funny observations about the literary world and how it really fetishizes identity. And Mona so clearly wants to be herself, but especially when she arrives at a college campus in America or a literary festival, she becomes a Latin American writer and kind of has to, in a way, like act out that 
persona. And she plays it, you know, sometimes willingly and sometimes less willingly. But I wonder, is that something that you've noticed about literary culture, being an Argentinian writer yourself and being translated into other languages? Do you think that's something that that happens both to you as a writer, but to other writers who are coming from maybe backgrounds that aren't considered like the, I don't know, heterogeneous norm? Yes, absolutely. So there are people who are writers and then they are like the tribes that arrive. <laughs> so so when, when you're from some part of the world, when you have like a certain colored skin, you are kind of like the representative of your tribe. And so you're kind of like invited into, you know, the, the society of letters to say like, oh, so from your point of view of being like the second or third rate citizen, like how does it feel to even like, right? And and so you, you're you're supposed to to be really thankful, very grateful that that someone is is actually, I mean, paying attention to you, even though I mean they're virtue signaling just by inviting you. I mean, this creates like this very weird dynamic. You have to kind of like uh, assume this role and and kind of play with it. To me, it was a surprise because before I went to the States, I didn't even know about the idea of person of color, people of color. So I would, you know, if I take a plane, I get into the United States, I become a person of color. But if I take another plane and I go to Europe or I go to even Mexico, it's just the frontier, I'm not a person of color anymore. So you, you had to become someone and therefore you had to become your own muse of how you were going to play out, you know, your little theatrical persona. And that's, that's always interesting. Did you feel that there were certain expectations of the kind of writing you were bringing to those festivals as well, like the exoticization of the Latin American writer based on like the American or the Anglophone, let's say, perspective of like Garcia Marquez or Cortázar, Borges, you know, those big giants, right? But it feels to me like in this novel, you're playing with that, with the expectations of the Latin American. I'm doing this in heavy quote marks, I wish you could see, <laughs> but like the Latin American style, yeah. I mean, there, there's an exotization that is really part of your, your persona as in a physical play. I mean, just like the way you present yourself. And so what's interesting is how you can make that clash or not with your ideas, with the things that you, you, that you have to say, whether you want to challenge these narratives or not. I don't know. I, I wanted to kind of challenge that narrative instead of just being like, oh, there is a narrative and that sells books. I'm just going to jump into it. <laughs> Let's see what I can do. This book also has a lot of really great observations about translation as well. And there's this great kind of scene where Mona is thinking about how she loves being around other translated authors from different languages, which she compares to swimming in her own lane in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, which made me laugh a lot. You know, this idea that <laughs> she kind of didn't want to be around other Spanish language writers because in a way she had to interact more with the different ways in which they were all playing the character of the Latin American writer. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I wonder if you ever feel this way yourself as a writer. And the other thing I wanted to ask was, I wonder if you find that your work takes on different resonances in translation. So are there things, for instance, that English language audiences ask you a lot more than, than Spanish language audiences? 
Well, with this book, I had the luck of, of working uh, very closely with my translator, with Adam Morris, who's an absolute genius. He lives in San Francisco. He's incredibly smart. And one of the things that he made me realize was that a lot of the things that I could get away with in Spanish, I could not get away in English because I would sound too harsh, too evil, too bitchy, or even worse things than that. So so he really like helped me like get the tone right so that it would be like a humorous, playful book and so that you wouldn't feel like, oh man, what's you know, what's this? Um, and so he, he was really, really great at capturing that tone and you know, languages are these like incredible spheres of sound and when you kind of penetrate them, you have to kind of really adjust your pitch in order to to can, can get in the right you know wavelength if you are in a you know wrong language you know to, you, you you wouldn't be understood or you would be like really like misunderstood so that's i mean and if you're playing with ideas and like kind of challenging stereotypes or or challenging what people are supposed to do with narratives or what writers what latin american people can do with narratives then you kind of like have to tread carefully one of the the next things that we wanted to to ask you kind of follows on from from this question about translation and the way that different languages structure our thinking. There's a line in the book: "There's no rule in Spanish to prevent infinite sentences." And I speak Spanish, and I have translated Spanish. And one of the things I've always loved about reading in Spanish is that sentences can last for paragraphs. Like Javier Marías is famous for this, you know, and, and famously difficult to translate as a result because, of course, in English, you can't have a infinite number of subordinate clauses. It doesn't read very well on the exactly. whole. Right? Yeah. So exactly. like, I, I want to read Mona in Spanish because I want to see the difference. But like, I'll send it to you. Yeah, but please send it to me. But did you, Absolutely. I mean... This was such a great, uh, it was just such a great observation to have inside the book. And and Carrie and I both wondered if you feel that when you're writing in Spanish, do you feel the limitness of the language when you're expressing yourself on the page? Well, I, I started Mona when I uh, moved in the States. And in the beginning, I was like, well, I know I'm an immigrant now. I'm going to write in English. And, and, I, and I wrote like, I don't know, four chapters or so. And then I left it marinating and, and then I was like kind of lost. And I realized I was missing the, the force, the strength, the, the craziness of Spanish. <laughs> and so I, I translated the whole thing and, and, I, and I really found the book in, in Spanish where, where, where Mona had to go. And to me, I don't know, it's like they're, they're so different in character, English and Spanish. I'm fascinated by English because it really has... Uh, um, I mean, there are parameters in which um, humor can be conveyed and in which like elegance can be played that have been like marked as, you know, as, as when, I don't know, animals go through a field a lot. And so you see the path and the path is clear. And in Spanish, that's, I mean, a much, it's as if, okay, maybe the path is clear, but it's the night. I don't see anything. So you're like, I mean, adrift in the dark. And it's, I mean, it's just like a wilder territory to me. Also, because, you know, there are so many Spanishes inside of Spanish. I was raised in Argentinian Spanish, but it's very different the way, I mean, very different. I mean, 
there are, you can find a lot of different subtleties with Iberian uh, Spanish. With, I mean, I'm living now in Barcelona and I'm, people sound differently. And I see how like, I, I'm started to, to make different kind of sentences and to put like a different, like slight twitches in the syntax. And what really gives me pleasure is to find like very controlled, elegant prose. That's what I like. And so English really helped me to kind of like see into a way in which sentences would be shorter. I mean, there would be like a punch to them. And like there's like this this beautiful movement that is really ingrained in, in English because you guys have yambics. I mean, there's like this different, this different kind of accent. Well, you know, that's the magic of Shakespeare also. It's like just this, I mean, incredible music that's a part of the language. So I, I, I love the idea of always like kind of like writing, you know, listening and, and thinking how a phrase is made both in Spanish or in English and kind of like see a way between the two. And that's maybe, or, or maybe not, but uh, not, it's not an in-between, but really have to try them both. Well, language is a bridge, isn't it? I mean, really, it really is. It's it's such an emotional, well, it's where the emotion lives, isn't it? It's how we express ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. But I feel completely trapped if I would if I would write in Argentinian Spanish. I, w- I would I wouldn't like I wouldn't bear myself with it. Like I couldn't live with that. Fascinating. So I want to ask you about our theme today, which is satire, partially inspired by your book. And I've seen this book described a lot as a satire. And I wonder how you feel about that descriptor. And do you consider this book satirical? Yes, I love comedy. I mean, I love comedy and I, and I love satire and I have no problem with that label. I also like the idea of a book that conveys different genre in, in it. Like, I mean, there is satire, but there is also a psychological realism to it, I guess, that leads into, I don't know, some phantasmagoria of fantasy land. I mean, there are like these shifts that are not just that cannot just like be read in terms of a satire. I think the satire is like how you get into the book and how you, I don't know, you create a, a rich a relationship with the reader. And then when the satire becomes real, because what the interesting thing about satires is that you know satire transforms transforms into something else because it's just so real that it becomes something that that touches on. On, well, on Mona's life and, and also on the people that are there. So, so I like the idea that it's like this um, like mutating satire, if you like. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because I love that idea of satire being the, the thing that is most real. And I was thinking a lot as I was reading about the line between kind of satire and maybe stereotype, especially at this literary festival, you have all of these authors from different countries and a lot of them, even they themselves are leaning into the stereotypes about how like a French writer might be or how a Japanese writer might be, or even a a Swedish writer. Were you thinking about that when you were writing this? Like there's such a fine line between satire and something that tips into something a bit more dangerous or stereotypical or even biased. And I wonder how you were thinking about that in terms of how you're writing about these characters in particular. Well, yeah, that's that's a dangerous part. But of course, that's that's interesting. Because, I mean, or at least to me, it was interesting because it's dangerous. I feel like because everybody's trapped in a narrative and because everybody's into this like theatrical play of what literature is, when we are together, 
as as in the the idea of the literary circuit, everybody's kind of like kind of forced into playing a certain kind of stereotype. What I try to make clear throughout the book is not just that they are stereotypes as they are. They are like working into becoming their own stereotypes in order to be accepted into this society of letters. I mean, it's tricky because it's like a meta problem. It's like you're saying, okay, the society of letters like is asking you to fulfill this kind of fantasy of what exotization is, of what being from a certain place is. What do you do with that? And what people do is comply with it. So it becomes like this kind of like comedy of social manners, if you like, where where people are kind of like taking their parts of where they're from and kind of like trying to blend in what in, with what is supposed with what is you know expected of them in a way. Mm. Yeah, it sort of feels like trying to fight cynicism with cynicism in a way. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, because it's it's not necessarily a warm and fuzzy book. There's a spikiness to this book that I really, you know, I really enjoyed, but it feels like, you know, a deliberate choice. And I wonder if you feel that way when you're writing or if, is that just kind of what comes from Mona or is it more coming from your artistic vision for what this story should be? To me, it's very, very important to feel that the page is funny. And if I find the book funny, the, the reader will find it funny. And I cannot have like too much fun if you are too nasty, too horrible. That's kind of like the equilibrium that, that you have to find between like looking for the funniness and not, not, not just like going gorish <laughs> with, with, uh, with the amount of pain <laughs> that you can inflict on a character or, or the amount that you, of laughter that you can get of, of, of him. I mean, I do find that uh, a great way of surviving in society is to see everyone as a character and to kind of like write them up in my head and dissect them in my head. So this is something that I... I love doing and I encourage other friends to do it because it's very, um, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's good when you write your diary and then, then you have these really vivid, vivid images of all these people and <laughs> the people that you loved and the people that you didn't love that much, but maybe there's a part of them that, that, that was kind of charming in their own awful way. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to take that into my diary writing tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, thank you, Paula. That was fantastic. Thank you so much, Octavia, for having me. And thank you, Carrie. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Picador. Many months ago, we spoke about our great love for the sea, something that has captivated the minds and imaginations of writers and poets across centuries. We talked about how the sea is the perfect symbol of all the hidden depths that are inaccessible to us, containing endless possibility and unknowability, bigger and deeper than the lives we lead on dry land. One novel that explores the depths and dangers of what lies beneath the surface is Our Wives Under the Sea, by Julia Armfield. The novel tells the story of two wives, Miri and Lee. When Lee finally returns home after a deep sea mission that ended in catastrophe, Miri thinks that she has her wife back. But 
it soon becomes clear that something is very wrong with Lee. Lee saw something when she was stranded at the ocean floor and she's carried it with her back to dry land. The woman she loves may be back, but Miri and Lee are living like strangers in the same space, haunted by memories of what they had before. What happened under the surface and can Miri bring Lee back to herself? The Times have described it as part bruisingly tender love story, part nerve-clanging submarine thriller, heart-slicing and cinematic. And Sarah Waters has hailed it as deeply romantic and fabulously strange. Julia Armfield has received praise from Daisy Johnson, Megan Hunter, and Florence Welsh, who has described Our Wives Under the Sea as sublime in its creepiness. A haunting and lyrical story about love, loss, and what lies in the deepest depths of the ocean. Our Wives Under the Sea is the debut novel from the author of the critically acclaimed collection of short stories, Salt Slow. Out now and available from your local independent bookshop. Okay, so now we're going to talk about our bigger theme today, which is satire and literature. It is really lame to start with the dictionary (laughs) definition, but I'm going to just because I don't think it's as easy to define satire as we maybe think. Also, I don't think it is that lame to start with the definition, to be honest, because meanings are not guaranteed to be understood the same way by everyone. And it's pretty good practice to pin down what you're trying to say. So don't do yourself down, girl. Oh, well, thank you very much for actualizing me. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the definition in the OED. Satire is a poem or in later use, a novel, film, or other work of art which uses humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize prevailing immorality or foolishness, especially as a form of social or political commentary. That is a very fulsome definition, and it totally tallies, I'm pleased to say, with how I use the word satire and have done for my whole life. (laughs) It's kind of amazing when you realize you've been using a word wrong forever. It happens to me frequently. Oh, it happens to me so much. Yeah. so embarrassing. Yeah. And and when we started to do the show, it's like, I should, this came from me looking it up because I was like, I should make sure I actually understand what satire is. <laughs> yeah. But I think, yes, I, that was also relatively my understanding. So I guess moving on, what do you think makes a good satire? Because it's all well and good to poke fun of things, but how do you do it effectively? For me, honestly, it's wit. Like, you know, when you see satire that isn't that funny, It's critical, but maybe it's not that funny. That's when I kind of think, oh, it's not very skillful. Because for me, the real skill of satire, it's witty. It doesn't have to make me laugh out loud, but you know that sort of uncomfortable wry smile when you that you get when you kind of read a satirical piece of writing that absolutely hits the nail on the head. For example, I mean, like our current government is a gift to a writer like Marina Hyde in The Guardian for her Mm. satirical columns because there's so much corruption, there's so much that's disgusting, and there's so much that humour can bring to light. But in that very kind of dry, merciless way, in a way, like for me, the humour of satire is the velvet glove inside of which is the fist (laughs) of whatever punch the author's trying to land, right? And I think Paula does that so brilliantly in in Mona 
when she skewers the kind of convention of prize ceremonies, especially when they're international and they bring all the authors and force them into the pigeonholes of their own identities. Like she's very, very wry about that in a way that's very funny. But I was also thinking, I think that's easier to achieve with readers or an audience who is intimately connected to the world that you're satirizing mm. because otherwise those nuances are going to get lost, aren't they? So for me, like I know the ins and outs of academic and literary culture very well. So those moments where she's revealing a specific hypocrisy or a kind of grotesquerie of the conventions that govern those worlds, I know that it's true because I've been there or I've seen and experienced it. So it really, really resonates with me. Whereas I wonder if it would with someone who's never been to a literary festival, for example. And so I was thinking, is that actually maybe a condition for really powerful satire that it needs to find its correct audience that has some kind of prior knowledge or experience of the thing being skewered? Yeah, I do. I remember reading um, Gulliver's Travels as a teenager and there were all these footnotes about like the Whigs and the Tories and I, I I did not really enjoy that reading experience and I think part of it was the satire was just completely lost on me because I didn't understand the political workings of 18th century London. Right. So maybe that is a way that satire is a bit limited. It doesn't transcend all boundaries and appeal to all readers. Yeah, in the specifics. However, if you are just satirizing power dynamics, then that's available to everyone to understand, right? Totally. And I guess it depends how the satire is mapped onto the subject that it's looking at. What do you reckon? Well, yeah, I totally agree with you about it needing to be funny. And for me, I also think for it really to succeed, it needs to be interesting in its own right, which is kind of related to what you were just saying. Otherwise, it's just a statement rather than a work of art. And that's where I feel a lot of satire sometimes falls down is that I'm looking for something that criticizes but also transcends, that I'm just enjoying in its own right and like laughing at the humor because it's funny, not because it's a criticism. So that's what I'm looking for from satire, something that it's its own thing, even when it's reflecting something else. I mean, that's a tall order, but I think that's what... <laughs> I think what... it's okay to have high expectations <laughs> for art and literature. <laughs> yeah, I I also think it, it's something that accurately, maybe this is even too obvious, but that accurately shows the faults of the things that it's mocking. So like an exaggeration that actually seems true to the thing itself. I think sometimes satire falls flat when it's like the exaggeration doesn't quite reflects the truth of the situation or what we know to be true. Right. You know, when it just feels a little off, there's just something not quite right about the exaggerated version of the thing it's mocking that satire is doing. I think another condition truly is what the satire is, is making fun of. And if it's somebody who's more powerful taking down or mocking or criticizing somebody less powerful than them, it's not as interesting because it's a mode of art that should exist to to take down those kinds of power structures, not to bark down at somebody who has less power. Right. I mean, I would argue that if it's going down, if it's punching down, it's not really satire, it's just bullying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But I mean, yeah. that's kind of what The Office was so good at, right? Which I, I can't watch. I'm too easily excruciated. But it was the people I knew who loved the English version, especially, you know, David Brent was an incredibly believable character. It was 
very, very satirical look at a particular culture, but it was absolutely accurate about it. And I don't think it would have been interesting to so many people if it wasn't, right? Yeah, totally. I find the British office a little too excruciating. I like the warm and cozy American office. I'm afraid <laughs> to say. <laughs> I haven't actually tried that. I just, the whole thing, I'm like, no, I want to be in, I'd rather watch the X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to be in a different planet. 100%. Um, <laughs> 100%. I do not want to spend time in like the daily misery of reality. <laughs> Enough of that has to be tolerated anyway. <laughs> so, um, in terms of the ambitions of satire, what do you think good satire has to do? Do you think it has to make a change? Do you think it has to politically move people? I don't think it has to have that ambition, but I think it's excellent when it has that result. I think that act of shining a light on injustices or disappointments or imbalances in the world is ambition enough. I think that one hopes that that will then eventually lead to change anyway, because, you know, bringing things into daylight is the first step, isn't it? We all kind of, there are things that we we choose to ignore or we learn to live alongside or we don't notice because of our various privileges. And I think satire can be an extremely powerful tool for bringing that stuff into people's attention in a way that Maybe they don't feel like they're being beaten over the head by a sanctimonious person on a soapbox, which people tend to have quite a bad reaction to. But I don't think that the intention of satire need necessarily be beyond just showing people how fucked up the world in front of them is, because hopefully the next phase of whatever is going to come will come sort of from that. But I think if if you go in with that intention in mind, it might make it harder to make good satire. Because you have to be, I don't know, you have to be able to be biting and funny and you, I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do see what you're saying. And I'm as you're talking, I think I agree with you. I also, I wonder if there are people in the world that argue that satire isn't that effective because it almost lulls you into a false sense of security of just being able to laugh at things and not actually affecting change. But I don't think, again, that art needs to have the ambition to make any changes and it's enough that we can make fun of things. And I, th- I think it's also very relevant that dictators and tyrants have a history of making rules about literally not being able to mock them or the state, you know, Erdogan or Putin. And that conversely, satire is protected by the constitution in, in Germany and Italy. Right. So, you know, it does have power and uh, it's an important right that we need to mock our our institutions. Absolutely. And it's a way of, it's just, it's a way of redressing the balance. It's a way of taking the wind out of the sails of power, I think. Yeah. Which is very important. But I do think the counterpoint that you just described is a fair one, probably. I think it's just all in the mix, basically. So let's, let's get into some actual examples. Um, (laughs) And, and maybe the way into this is, do you like to read satire and what kind of satire do you tend to seek out? I mean, I really enjoy it when I enjoy it. I don't necessarily seek out satirical books as it were, but when I was thinking about books I've read and really enjoyed for this show, actually quite a lot of them are satires like Cold Comfort Farm, which I mentioned quite often by Stella Gibbons. It's a parody, but I hadn't realized quite how much of a satire it was until I was thinking about it through this lens. But it was a parody of contemporary fiction of the time about rural life that was like highly romanticized and often laden with this kind of heavy doom. And I love that book. 
But I love it because as you say about good satire, it's a good book in its own right, even if you mm. aren't au fait with the contemporary literature that it's taking the piss out of, you know? Don Quixote, which I never finished, but um, <laughs> that is a satire. Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess is a satire. American Psycho by Bright Easton Ellis, which, you know, complicated book, but it's an incredibly, oh God, relentless satire of something very kind of worthy of satire, you know, like uh, Wall Street hyper-masculinity yeah. and um, misogyny. So yeah, I do, but I I wouldn't say, I think it can also sometimes feel very cold and I don't always want to read books that leave me feeling like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And for that reason, I can't say that satire is my favorite genre. Um, I think I'm drawn to more emotional works of art and the inherent kind of critical eye in satire can make it seem cold, or even if it's really funny, there's still a kind of coldness to humor. You know, it's it's not emotional and warm and all about characters. Well, you like sincerity. Yeah, I do. <laughs> it's kind of your, your kink. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. And it's like kind of cool right now culturally, but I know that moment is, is going to go away again and I'll, I'll continue to be deeply basic and uncool. Babe, but Indus Lees is back. <laughs> sincerity is out the window i'm sorry to say <laughs> oh well I'll, I'll stay here in sincerity corner but like you i then was thinking about books that are satirical and there are plenty of books that i love that are satire you know i evil and was novels i loved french exit by patrick dewitt who we interviewed on the show even catch 22 which is a book that I loved, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which I've mentioned a few times in the show. That's a satire, and I don't really think of it as such, but it certainly is. So maybe I like satire more than I think I do, like you. Yeah. I think also quite a few of those examples, the reason that we like them is because they're not only satires, they also offer something else. So I think maybe that's kind of where we've landed, right? Like We like satire when it's also trying to do other things. Yeah, totally. And also I was thinking about this. I wonder if this is a very new theory, but I wonder if satire is a little bit easier in visual mediums because I was thinking about there's so much satire that I love watching on like TV. So um, the movie Get Out or like Chris Morris's shows, Brass Eye or The Day Today. I love those shows and I enjoy them so much. And even Succession, I think, is a kind of satire. Oh, yeah. But I don't know. There's something about like, if somebody said, read this novel, it's like a satirical comedy, I'd kind of grimace. But if it was a TV show, I'd be much more on board. Maybe because you don't have to get so deeply inside it when you're watching yeah. a TV show. It doesn't require as much intimacy from you. Yeah. Anyway, that's my theory. What is your recommended satirical novel? I mean, I'm just so pleased I get to bring this baby out again, but it's obviously <laughs> going to be The Master of Margarita. Uh, I, was not, I was thinking we might hear that title yeah, from you today. By Mikhail Bulgakov, <laughs> which um, regular listeners to the show will know is one of my favorite books of all time. And so how could I not? Because I think this is a book that shows that satire really needn't be a limiting genre and that you can have incredibly biting satire that's part of a bigger whole and that only actually gains from being so. So if you're not familiar with this book, it was written in the Soviet Union under Stalin's regime between 1928 and 1940. So in a really intense time <laughs> in global history, 
And in a nutshell, the plot is basically about the devil paying a visit to the Soviet Union, which is officially atheistic. So not that into the idea of the devil. And the story is incredibly complicated in a way. It's got several different strands, almost like different books within the book. Um, So one of them is this really mordant satire of the literary and political class of the time, which is very funny, even if you don't know that much about Russian history, because literary scenes are kind of the same throughout history and in <laughs> contemporary life, you know? They have the potential yeah. to be dreadfully pompous and pretentious, and they also have the potential to be wonderful places. So then there's also the novel within the novel, which is about Christian philosophy and actually very moving. And then there's this fabulous supernatural plot involving witches and a talking cat that I've always had a crush on. So it remains one of the books I've ever read. And if you haven't yet, please do, please do, please do. But do think about satire while you're reading it, because it's, uh, it's a good one for that. Nice. What's yours? Well, I wanted to give a shout out to a classic of the genre, which is Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. And I admit that it took me a few tries to read this book. I tried to read it a few times before I finally finished it. But it's a great book. And I think it's great because it is genuinely funny to get back to your first point. It's just witty as hell, while also exposing the absurdity of war. It's set during the Second World War. It's like the definition of an anti-war novel, but in a really clever, enjoyable way. You know, it's it's really fun to read. There's a character named Major, 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 Major. <laughs> you know, there's just <laughs> things like that throughout the whole thing that it's like a confection. And then, but it's also really horrible. And it's about people being trapped in circumstances in which lots of people are dying for no good reason. So yeah, great novel. Yeah, it's such a great book. Really, really great and perfect, perfect shout for this. Major, 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 major. Right, we are back here to give our book recommendations. Also here with Pola, our lovely author guest. So Octavia, would you like to start with your book recommendation? I would. And I'm really excited to be recommending this book because I've just finished it and it was such a fantastic read. Um, So it's called The Liars Club by uh, American author Mary Carr, spelled with a K, K K-A-R-R. And it's a memoir from 1995 about her really chaotic Southeast Texas childhood in the 1960s. Her parents were big characters, big drinkers, and their world was messy, often dangerous, definitely not A-grade parenting happening in this book. And they would leave Carr and her sister Lisa to fend for themselves in all kinds of kind of dangerous circumstances. So their father worked at the local oil refinery and their mother was a troubled bohemian type. She's kind of an artist who is ultimately quite unfulfilled with pretty unstable mental health and this this sort of dissatisfaction with life that permeated her experience. But she's also, you kind of fall in love with all of these characters in spite of their problematic behaviors because Carr's voice is so 
uncompromising, but it's also deeply loving. So she kind of, it's a real like warts and all portrait of these people, but she obviously has such deep, deep love for them, even though they messed her up and her life was complicated as a result of it all. And I just think those memoirs with that, the really, really powerful voice, I feel like they they were having a moment in the 90s and I haven't come across so many of them now. I feel like memoir is in a different phase at the moment and it's very powerful to go back to its phase at that time because she's just this kind of straight talking, wisecracking, but like very, very smart friend, really, when you read the book. And there's this vivid family portrait, but also she's writing about memory and she's trying to sort of represent the way that memory works and how all families carry dysfunction, but kind of at the heart of family dysfunction is also these different versions of the truth that every family member carries and how these memories don't always intersect in a very kind of straightforward way, basically. So yeah, I would say absolute banger of a story, really fascinating, but also just such a thoughtful philosophical book about the nature of memory and like how memory relates to legacy and how we can choose certain things about our lives, but perhaps there are other things that we can't choose really. So strong recommendation. Oh, that sounds so great. I've heard so many great things about that book. So I'm delighted that you recommended it and it it makes me want to pick it up even more. Yeah, I think you'd love it. Paula, could we have your book recommendation, please? So a book that I'm obsessing with lately is a book called Borges by Bioy Casares. Bioy Casares was Borges' best friend throughout his life. And he has been writing this, this diary of his that turned into this brick that he published after his death, in which he, they together destroyed literary society in Argentina, Spain, and beyond. Not only are they incredibly witty and funny, but they're also, I mean, it it just like showed me a different kind of Borges that I had never imagined before. Because what's so amazing about this book is that apparently Borges knew that Bioy was writing this. So there are passages in which Bioy it's taking notes and Marcus is like, yes, okay. So they, they were aware that this was going on, that this conversation would become eternal. This conversation between two friends would become, you know, forever real. And what really fascinates me is that it showed me a Borges that I wouldn't have never imagined before because it's a Borges that is, he's really involved in the literary society and the problems and he's like, tried to you know like oh who's getting that price and no I'm going to be the jury of that I mean he's in all like the the vulgar stuff and the, the greedy wow. like little things that that you know Borges has constructed this incredible image of you know the aloof wise man blind like a homer-like figure and in this book like he just becomes this like really like one of us and when when he falls in love and he's like that man is just like just you know in pain at 60 just because he's in love and and I don't know this really brought Borges like so close to me like I, I never imagined that you know that this was going to happen this book really shows you a side of him that blends really well with a part of Borges that nobody really likes to take a look at, which is how incredibly active he was politically. It's just brilliant to see him alive again, kind of walking among us. And also the beautiful thing about this book is that it's, it's going to be translated. I mean, it's getting translated. 
now and it's coming out next year. So you have to wait one more year, but it's coming out in a transition by Valerie Miles, who's amazing. Oh, it sounds fantastic. I'm a big Borges fan. Oh, it's so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so my recommendation is a book of short stories called Both Ways is the Only Way I Want It by an author named Mel Malloy. And this is one of the books that I read during my COVID convalescence, which is still happening. I really enjoyed it. This is an American writer I hadn't heard of before, and a friend recommended that I pick it up. It was published in 2010. And for the most part, these stories, I guess, are examples of kind of emotionally exacting realism. I was thinking a lot about Alice Munro while I was reading them. She's really writing in that tradition. Octavia, as you know, this is my uh, bread and butter. Um, this is your favorite <laughs> stuff. Yeah. A lot of them are set in Montana, um, which is where the author grew up in the American West. And her prose is very direct. And most of these stories are about ordinary people living ordinary lives. You know, they're on camping trips with their father. They're deciding whether to leave their wife. They're picking up a pair of strangers who are stranded on Christmas Eve and kind of feeling the shifts that come from that. But I think the power of the stories is that the turns that they take always feel both true, but also totally unexpected. I was always surprised by them, but never felt that there wasn't a real deep, powerful truth to them. They're very witty too, and often funny. So much of this book, as the title points to, is about indecision, about wanting it both ways, about not being able to have it both ways, because that's life. And uh, the unbearable ways in which we have to make choices and how often not making a choice is a choice in itself. I really enjoyed it. It was a, a wonderful way to spend my time in bed while ill. So I would very much recommend it. Sounds fantastic. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Pola Aloysharak, to Daphne Karnesis for editing, and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary Fiction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes an enormous difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.